Hello and welcome to Who Watches the World Cup with me, Dominic Archer, and David Bryan. Hello, Dave. Hello, Dom. Oh, that was that was very jovial. I'm glad we were in such a good mood today. Uh, let's get straight. Let's get mood. straight to it. We are the uh, the only podcast in the entire world that I know of that tries to predict World Cup results based partly on the quality of football that the team plays. I guess that's important in the World Cup, but also on the political turmoil and strife and excitement that makes this such an amazing sporting event in the first place. So in the previous episode, we spoke about Group A. We spoke about Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Uruguay, which uh, they still haven't played yet at the time of recording. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how those matches play out later on today. But today we're going straight on to Group B. Dave, who are the teams in Group B? Uh, Group B will consist of Portugal, Spain, Morocco and Iran. Now, this is, footballing-wise, I'm, I'm going to guess a much more interesting group than, than Group A, right? Um, I'd say so. I think we're, we're going to see more exciting football and probably a lot more goals. Well, we, we certainly hope so. Especially uh, the most important match, at least from my perspective here, is the, the Portugal-Spain match, which is well, the, the, the first match of the group. Um, and I'm, this has got to be one of the deciders, right? Like either we've got to assume that Spain or Portugal are going to be topping the group and it's got to be whoever wins this one, right? You'd think so. Yeah. I mean, this is the sort of tie that, um, you like to see in the group because it gets the tournament off to an exciting start, but then you can also imagine this would be a great tie to see later on in the tournament, in the knockout stages, Mm. Portugal versus Spain, both massive footballing nations. Portugal just coming off of the Euro 16 win, which took a lot of people by surprise. And Spain, obviously having been a behemoth of, of world football in the, in recent times, winning Euro 2008 and Euro 2012 and sandwiching in between. The sandwich in between that is their World Cup win in 2010. So yeah, it's a, a veritable uh, cavalcade of world-class talent. So as you're saying there, Spain have been pretty dominant internationally for for a while portugal yeah 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 you know they they won they won the last euros but i'm never going to forgive cristiano ronaldo for winking at wayne rooney i know (laughs) i know it's years ago i'm not going to get over it but i personally i would have thought that spain were the favorites heading into this until moments ago spain announces that uh, two days before the tournament begins, they're sacking their manager. Uh, unbelievable! I it, it stunned me. I didn't when you when you you were the one who broke this news to me actually, and I didn't believe you. I immediately <laughs> I was sat I was sat in the car park outside Pets at Home with my mum, and I I turned on my data and I went straight to the to a reputable source for football news. Uh, and am i not a reputable uh, source for footballing news is that what you're trying to say yes (laughs) fair enough fair enough i had to i had to back you up i always look for sources dom you know that's that's good i respect that well this couldn't have been a more dramatic start to a world cup especially considering it's one that's going to be in russia and if any um world breaking news is going to come out of a major sporting event in Russia before the actual sport itself begins I suppose you may have been forgiven for expecting something a lot more horrible <laughs> no but one's been me, assassinated yet so that's no one's a bonus been assassinated that we're aware of <laughs> um, and there haven't there's no yet no reports that I've seen yet of um, Russian ultras clashing with English football hooligans and starting the next world war but that could still be to come but in terms of football no one could have no one could have seen this coming but it seems the person who didn't see it coming the most is uh, chairman of the spanish fa luis rubiales um having come out and said that he found out about uh, the spanish managers i'm going to try and pronounce his name i know i was practicing this with you earlier but i'm always, i'm terrible at this uh, julen lopetegui Oh, that was good. That was okay. 
That was all right. But um, yeah, Julian Lopetegui was announced just moments before, uh, maybe it was the day before, that he was going to replace Zinedine Zidane as the Real Madrid manager, having right. um, Zizou having left after the previous season. Um, but yes, the uh, chairman of the Spanish FA, Rubiales, claimed that he didn't know about this, didn't even know that um, Lopetegui was in talks with Real Madrid until five minutes before Real Madrid announced the news that they had appointed him as their next manager. So from... From the point of view of uh, breaking news, if you're the chairman of the Spanish FA, you don't want to be finding this out the same time as the public are. Yeah, that makes complete sense. But do you think, I mean, what, so what happens is, is he, Real Madrid announce it, and then it seems to be a near instant decision by the Spanish FA. They don't take a couple of days to ponder it. They don't no. think, oh, well, you know, it's the World Cup in two days. Uh why don't we remove him from his position afterwards? Is, yeah, but presumably it, he was going to leave his position as a Spanish manager to take over at Real Madrid anyway. Yeah. So maybe maybe that's where the tension arose, is that it's basically like handing in your your six weeks notice on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> like announcing to the world that you're going to be leaving your job before you've told your employers that you're going to be leaving your job. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, but and, I, I mean, it's interesting that the the chairman of the FA himself, Rubiales, he's only been in the in his job since May. He's he's brand new to his position. Right. So for him to come out to come one of his well, probably his first action as chairman of the FA to sack the national team manager in such dramatic and instant fashion, like you say, without any real time for for consideration, is is bizarre, especially considering. Lupetegui's record, yeah, like he's 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 been a very successful manager with the Spanish team. He's since he was appointed in 2016, they have not lost a match. And it's not l- like looking at he's their a results, bit shaky to begin with. Looking at their results recently, earlier in Mar- in March, they they drew they drew one all with Germany, which uh, that's pretty remarkable. That's what you would expect from from two world champions. And then in the follow up match, the next match, they beat Argentina six one. 6-1. I mean, I know these warm-up games are technically friendlies, but no, they don't want to be lost. Whoever's <laughs> playing these games does not care if... if uh, sorry, does care and does want to win these games. So to go out and demolish a team like Argentina with players that they have, that that's is a statement. unbelievable. That is incredible. And what is really interesting, as you were saying uh, about the Spanish FA, you know, he's, he's only been in the job uh, for about a month. If Spain now lose... Or if they are embarrassed the way they were in previous, in like the more recent tournaments that they've been in. Yeah, twenty fourteen, they went out and just in the group stages. Yeah, it was it was uh, unprecedented. But if they have a repeat experience of that now, coming off the back of these string of results they've just had, beating Argentina six one, if they go out early on in this tournament, the manager isn't the one getting the flack here, right? So who who took over as uh, as manager now? Um, former Real Madrid uh, centre-half Fernando Hierro is, is taken temporary charge of the national team he was um, director of football for the Spanish right. um, Football Federation um, he's in his second stint actually he did it for a little while before leaving in November 2017 um, no sorry he returned to the role in November 2017 having done the role previously um, and I think that's a pretty sensible um, appointment in such a last minute um, such a last minute action Seeing that he is a very respected former player, he won great things um, for Real Madrid um, as a, their captain. And although he was part of a generation of Spanish international players, that they did have something of a golden generation in the in the 90s. But a bit a bit like Belgium have in the last few years, they've got these great stars, but they never could really produce as a team at, at major tournaments. And of course, maybe it's, um, you could say, well, I'm sure you could say that the the most recent generation of Spanish players are the golden generation who could mm. produce at great tournaments. But he's still a very well-liked man. And I think he, at the very least, if, we've, even if we're not quite sure what his tactical acumen is, and how, um, I'm not sure he's had a professional managerial position um, before, but he can at least garner some some kind of momentum, some respect, and probably manage those players as people. It's just whether they can put together... Um, a system that works in such a short period of time. It is kind of ridiculous. And I was uh, 
I was reading up on this a little bit earlier on because I didn't want to be outpaced by the World Cup footballing news uh, as it goes by. And it was interesting reading what different football analysts were saying. And a lot of them were saying, you know, if this was England, you're in trouble. If Gareth Southgate suddenly just left, everything that England has been working towards would it would be over. The tournament would be finished. But as you're saying about this idea of a Spanish golden generation, um, the Spain team, the, sorry, this Spain team is still ridiculously strong. Right? It is, like, yeah. I mean, they're, they're maybe not as strong as they were uh, um, when they were winning Euros and World Cups left, right and centre, but they still have a massive amount of experience mm. of players that were, were a part of that generation. Maybe they're towards the, the end of their career now, but they're still world-beating players. And they have that experience that is, is, is invaluable, as well as having this great in, injection of youth and uh, exuberance in players that are really making a name for themselves on the world yeah. stage. Isco and Asensio at Real Madrid particularly are dangerous players and not players that any country's defence are going to want to face. I mean, even in goal, right, we're looking at David De Gea, one of the, if not the best, goalkeeper in the Premier League at the moment. In, in yeah, maybe def- the world, yeah. It's... In, in defence, the, the Spanish defence um, is so experienced to the point of maybe being a little too experienced. Um, but yeah, so, maybe age age will play a factor um, if they do yeah. progress later into the tournament. But I mean, you can't argue. There's, I mean, there's no nation that wouldn't want any of that back line in their team. No, we're looking at Sergio Ramos here with 152 caps. Gerard Piquet is on 98 caps. He's about to hit his centenary as well. Sergio Biscuits, uh, Sergio Biscuits, that's his name. Biscuits. Biscuits. That is his name. That's I, I always call him Biscuits. I refuse yeah. to call him his real name. That is correct, though. He is on 103 <laughs> caps. Iniesta, 127 caps. David Silva, 121 caps. We're talking 700 caps in five players. Like yeah, it, it is ridiculous how experienced like the legends, the titans of this team are. And then as you're saying, Isco and even uh, in David Costa is he's on twenty caps, or rather he's a little a little bit older than everybody else. But this yeah, is Costa, yeah, yeah. He kind of he. I mean, he's obviously a world class player, but he kind of suffered uh, as being part of that generation where he was second fiddle to like to Fernando Torres, for example. Right. A, a different... right were difficult to displace when he yeah. was at his prime. Understandably, yeah. Okay, do you think that this the Spanish team still stands a chance? What what I'm thinking about in regards to that is the Spanish system. Obviously, they're, they're under uh, Vincente del Bosque, who ret- uh, the only reason he's not the manager now is he retired, and that's why Lubitegui t- took him over in the 2016. But his system was the one that was coined Tiki Taka. A kind of very fast-paced, short passes, moving the ball around constantly, little triangles, and that's the system that won them two European Championships in the World Cup. Since Del uh, Del Bosque has left, Lubitegui adapted that system. I wouldn't say he changed it dramatically, but he adapted it to include a bit of a higher pressing game, a kind of tactical system that is pretty successful in currently in European football. Liverpool were a great example of how that can be worked brilliantly with counter-attacking and pressing. Uh, the season just gone. And Spain have very much been doing that throughout throughout qualification. Um, so with Hierro coming in just two days before the tournament, sensible money would be on him not trying to fiddle with that. It's the system that was implemented throughout qualification in which they did really well. And they, they you know, responsibility and um, but even the goals were shared out quite widely amongst the squad. I mean, I think in qualification, five different players, uh, sorry, four different players scored five goals each. Right. Um, so they have a good depth in their squad. So if I was Fernando Hierro, I would just be saying, um, I'll pick the 11 who are fit and who did well in qualifying and you guys just go play football and, you know, I'll stand on the touchline and point and pretend like I know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. This is, a, this is probably an, a deeply embedded system with only a couple of minor changes that I'm sure the Spanish players could do with their eyes closed. Mm. I mean, what was great, what's, what was so successful, I think what made... Spanish team so successful in this golden generation was that um, and a similar thing what happens in the German national team is that these this group of players especially that golden generation they have been a playing together on a national level since they were schoolboys. 
they all progressed at the same time from under 17s to under 21s to the first team. So the kind of problems we see with England, for example, where um, these players are all coming together, having barely knowing each other and the squad changes every time there's international call-ups. The Spanish team have been pl- basically been like a club um, since they were boys for 20, uh, for 15 years, 10 years or so. So they have this, this mesh, this, uh, resp- uh, this relationship that, can't really be can't really be garnered in over a short period of time it takes a couple of decades for that to really implement itself and it's as we've seen with them and with Germany too that it's invaluable you have a, a tightly knit group of players like that and anything can be done if you've got the talent which undoubtedly Spain have, have had and do still have that was one thing that I thought was really interesting looking up some uh, exciting statistics and percentages was oh, I that like statistics? Oh, I think get ready because this is a roller coaster ride. I was oh, looking. Boy. I was looking at uh, homegrown players that play in uh, in the top flight league, right? So, the by the percentage, how many foreign players play in in uh, in each league, right? Okay. And you look you look at the Premier League. The Premier League in in England is sixty four percent foreign players, right? Which right. When the the vast majority of your league is foreign players, your national team is going to suffer from that because not only yeah, are the... are your country's players not in the top flight, but also they're spread out. One would assume across multiple teams, which means you don't yes, have yeah. a situation with such as um, with with Spain, where you know Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona have. Or so many incredible players that uh, it's kind of ridiculous. But the Premier League is at 64% foreign, whereas La Liga is 42% foreign, which means it is, well, 58% Spanish players. Yeah, over half. I mean, that's, I think that's probably how it should be. Um, but all, all you can really say to that, because I'm sure those those numbers even probably go even uh, lower in terms of number of the percentage of foreign players with other major leagues around around Europe with the Bundesliga and League 1 in France I'm sure you yeah, actually the, the, Bundes, the Bundesliga players. the Bundesliga is exactly in the middle there is between La Liga is the lowest La Liga has the, the Oh is lo- it really? It is yeah which I thought was really interesting I thought the Bundesliga would that be is. lower but but actually it's directly in the middle on 53% the only leagues that are close to La Liga is the Swiss Oh, no, the Swiss isn't even close. The Malta Premier League is the closest. Really? We, we, the, the Malta Premier like, the La Liga is, is incredibly far ahead uh, on this, which is strange when you think how, you know, Barcelona is made up of, of, of you know, your Messi's and, and, and I'll let Neymar just go to PSG a couple of seasons ago. Yeah, you know, yeah Suarez, another yeah, yeah, world-class, yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, widely-based players, home, not homegrown. Yeah. yeah. But it just goes to show it. You have a strong, a strong national league like that. There is, as you're saying, a unity that that is built up uh, over your national team, which is exactly what you need when your manager is fired two days before. Uh, yeah, you need a group of players who all know each other's roles and each other's jobs, and yeah, can basically it'd be. Inter- I mean, if Spain, like you said, if if there is an embarrassment, Spain can't gel, and they go out in the group stage or in the second round. Then that obviously that's going to fall back on the football federation and not necessarily on the players or the the interim manager. Mm. But if they can go really far, how I mean the headlines are going to be Spain reach whatever stage with basically with no manager. They could they just the players just did it on their own. Yeah, I think it's... just to go back to what you were saying about um, the percentage of foreign players in the Premier League versus La Liga and, and other leagues. To be devil's advocate for a moment, the argument against that always is, or at least with how much uh, how high the percentage of foreign players is in the Premier League is that the Premier League is the most competitive league in Europe it's I mean I should maybe I should say arguably but it seems um if you're if you're in watch European football that has to be considered to be the case if you when you look at t- um, leagues like Bundesliga and La Liga and League Earth, those are leagues that consistently are, are the title is fought between two or three teams at the most under the same two or three teams every year maybe if you if you branch out to the top five, the 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 bottom two or three can shift and change, but the top two or three are always the top two or three. Whereas in the Premier League, 
it's a, there's obviously a lot more money involved and players come from all over the world, but we've seen from a dominant era in the 90s and early 2000s where Man United were winning everything, then Arsenal started to win a few, and then Chelsea started to win a few, and then Man City have started to win a few. And it keeps it's so fluctuant because all of these talents brought from all over the world to sh- as the Premier League is designed to be this showcase of the world's greatest talent to create the most competitive and most exciting league in the world. So I think that it's a difficult balance to, to have. If we were, if the English FA, for example, really wanted to, to garner a future of a squad, uh, an, inter- an international level squad to the, that could rival Spain or Germany in their systems, which we've talked about, to build from, from the ground up, we'd have to start now. We wouldn't really expect any change for 10, 20 years. Yeah. If they, if they tried to like um, really develop youth talent and give a bit of a bit of bias towards English and British talent and give that precedence in our league. Um, but obviously Spain, Germany obviously figured that out a long time ago. And as a result, they've dominated international football for a long time. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, when you're trying to weigh up, do you want a strong domestic league or do you want to perform well? internationally that those would yeah. be concerns that you would have to weigh up it's not just the case of having the best players it's that in 10 20 years you actually these are players here you have to grow you have to develop these players yeah um, and don't, don't just go out and splash money on the best when they're at their best you know to right. actually invest in development like you say yeah but um yeah that's maybe that's another conversation mm. <laughs> for another time one thing that i thought was interesting looking into it from the political side Going into this, as we were, we've literally just been talking about the the unity that this squad has because they've grown up in Spain playing Spanish football, mostly in in the same league on on the same teams. But as a nation at the moment, Spain is uh, actually rather divided um, between the majority of of the Spanish country. And then Catalonia in the uh, in the northeast of the country, and Catalonia yeah. Catalonia really is would not appear to be any different to any other part of of Spain, except for it contains Barcelona, and it is responsible for a quarter of the the country's economy, um, and Catalonia is rife with conflict and pro-independence movements and while that is is bound to have an impact on Spanish politics it also has a massive impact on Spanish football because FC Barcelona is one of the two biggest teams in Spain and should Barcelona become independent they would no longer be able to play in the Spanish leagues and I well, just, is that is that for certain? This is, is something. A... This is something I decided to research because I didn't want to make wild okay. accusations, Dave. You know, you know, <laughs> I I don't like to go out there and just throw out wild things like Cristiano Ronaldo is forever cursed by the wink he made at Wayne Rooney. But <laughs> but forgetting that, Barcelona is very interesting. FC Barcelona is very interesting in this case because they are one of the four thousand signatories of the National Agreement on the Right to Decide and the Referendum Agreement, which means they are they are um, a group of high-powered political parties and organisations that voted in favour of independence. The Barcelona supporters, at the 17th minute of every game, chant because 1714, the year 1714, was when Catalonia lost its autonomy to Spain. So in Barcelona matches, there is a whole minute dedicated to pro-independence. And even Gerard Piquet, who has 98 caps for Spain, openly supports Catalonian independence. Yeah, he's not the only one. Uh, Pep Guardiola, the Man City manager, got into a bit of trouble for um, refusing refusing to take off his... um... What, I think, what is it, a yellow flower or some kind of yeah, um, the symbol? symbol he, for independence, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, he's wearing it, he wore it on the touchline for much of last season and even when he was told that he should take it off, he refused and he was given fines and whatnot, but it, it didn't stop him. Yeah, and this is something that people, Catalonians, feel very strongly about. On both sides, it, it, it's the same where, the, it, again, it is a, 
more often uh, a, a youth movement, the same as with the independence in Scotland, um, that it is driven by a frustration that Spain has suffered economically since the 2008 financial crisis with bailouts and Catalonia is such an important part of that country that from the perspective of the people in Barcelona, they are seeing a failing country and seeing their area booming and thinking, well, what are we losing here? Why are, why are we propping up a country that would be falling down without us? And Gerard Piquet is one of the, as we were saying, is one of the people who is very much in favour of this. There are th only three Barcelona players on the Spanish national team. But when Piquet plays, he is jeered and whistled at by Spanish fans from other areas of Spain. Like, this is a team that has been built up together, but when they are on the pitch representing Spain, there are those players that would not like to be representing Spain at all. They would like to be representing Catalonia, which is, yeah. uh, which is incredible to think that you, you put players on your national team that would rather be playing for a separate country, which uh, I, thought, I thought was really interesting. Yeah, so that's something we've not really seen in world football since this uh, kind of repetitious breakup of the uh, the Eastern Bloc with Yugoslavia mm. um, breaking breaking into Bosnia Herzegovina, Serbia Serbia Montenegro, which have then subsequently split as well. So we have Serbia and we have Montenegro. So I mean, it's happened before, but obviously with different historical uh, implications. Mm. Yeah, in, in that part of the world. But yeah, it would be it would be bizarre. It would, uh, would be bizarre to see. But it happens. It has happened a little bit. Maybe not with terms of a breakaway. But the uh, in the in La Liga, Athletic Bilbao, or I think uh, Bilbao. Are they uh, a Catalonian city? I'm not sure. I know Espanyol is one of the teams that is in Catalonia. I'm not sure about Bilbao. Yeah. Well, Bilbao are interesting because um, I think they are Basque. I don't know. If, can you tell me whether Basque and Catalonian are the same thing? Uh, Basque is not part of Catalonia. It's on the oh, north. Okay. It's on the northwest. But there is also a very strong Basque independence movement in both Spain and France. The Basque region kind of straddles the, the south of Spain and, and oh, sorry, really? the, the north okay. of Spain and, and the south of France. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because I know that Athletic Bilbao. I, I, don't quote me on whether this is uh, still the case now, but there was a time when they would only ever sign, or, or rather, the only players that could play for Athletic Bilbao were Basque players. Right. So they would ne they would never sign players from other areas of Spain or from the rest of Europe or the world. It was basically like a, ba a Basque national team playing at club level in La Liga. That is very interesting, and uh, it will be interesting to see what happens with Barcelona and in, in this Catalonia movement because this resentment has been growing for years but it it was when last year in, in 2017 on October 1st the the devolved Catalonia parliament the same way that the Scotland and Wales have their own their own parliaments Catalonia has devolved powers from the from right. the, from Madrid this the parliament of Catalonia uh, declared a independence referendum that was not agreed to by Madrid. So it would be, for example, if Edinburgh just decided to have an independence referendum and didn't tell the rest of the UK about it. Um, and obviously then London in Westminster, they would say, well, you can't just do that. That's not within your powers just to have your own referendum. And that is exactly what happened in Spain. Catalonia, they had their own referendum and, and Madrid said... Well, that's an illegal referendum. It was 90% in favour of independence. And wow. there are a lot of factors that go into this. For example, because the referendum is illegal, um, those people who uh, support Madrid aren't going to turn out to vote in it, right? If, you, if you're thinking, well, th this referendum doesn't mean anything, it's an illegal referendum, why am I going to vote in it? Those are the people who want to stay in Spain anyway, who, who respect Madrid's authority. But yeah, 90% is still an overwhelming number. So Madrid did what uh, any, 
any democratic government that is suddenly losing control of its democracy can do. They sent the police, they sent the military, and they beat protesters, and it was a calamity to the point wow. where... As you, as you do, yeah. Yeah, exactly as every every democracy that says it respects freedom does do, it beat its people <laughs> to shit. And uh, then Catalonia, including FC Barcelona, held a national strike and didn't work at, in, in protest. And FC Barcelona didn't play a game. And it, this situation doesn't seem to be getting resolved anytime soon. And um, as I was saying, I, I did look into it. And Barcelona, FC Barcelona, says that if Catalonia was to become independent, as they want, bear in mind, Barcelona supports Catalonian independence. Barcelona, FC Barcelona says that they would remain part of La Liga. Whereas La Liga says, if that happened, the... A team from another country can't just join the Spanish National League, right? Like Paris yeah. Saint-Germain couldn't just decide to join the Spanish National League because they got bored of the French. Um, what about the, there's the example of um, Monaco. Monaco aren't necessarily technically part of France, but they play in the French League. Right. I think that that I don't know the specifics of that exactly, but it would for the, the Spanish League they would have to rewrite the law on a national level to include it's not even an FA decision it would have to be a government decision oh and wow i very much doubt that the spanish government would want to, <laughs> would want to do the catalonians any favors if they uh if they did just grant their independence so that kind of independence could result in you know the most profitable team in 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 the spanish league the, the perhaps the, the strongest team of of the last few decades just being gone of, be, of being homeless without but it would just be yeah. Barcelona wow. versus Espanyol over and over and over <laughs> again, um, which I thought and was of course interesting. Then, yeah, I mean, in that case, all the money that FC Barcelona brings in just to into the business is probably mm. gone. They can't, and then they can't afford to pay their players. And well, presumably, I mean, I think that with the power of FC Barcelona in the Catalan region, they would have a great amount of sway, or at least some impact on that uh, on that independence referendum. Yeah, they they would be very much involved in any legislation that was included in it, and because Spain can't, Spain as a nation can't afford to lose FC Barcelona. Let alone why we said was it the Catalan region uh, um, brings in a quarter of Spain's economy, yeah. or is it just Barcelona, the city? I think it's the area in general, but the area includes Barcelona. It's like it's the, it's uh, the number one tourist attraction. You know, it's yeah, people yeah, so, from all over the world go to Barcelona and Catalonia as an extension of that. Yeah, just for the for the architecture and for the city of, of culture that it is. But then I wonder how much of that quarter of Spain's economy is entirely reliant on Barcelona as a football club. Yeah, yeah, it's got to be fairly sizable. But if it, looking at the uh, at the national team uh, of all of the um, of all the players called up for this World Cup for for the Spanish national team, only three are from Barcelona. So oh, I count four. Oh, you can't forget. PK, Jordi Alba, Iniesta, and Busquets. I think Busquets did have an injury, but he should be fine to to play. Ah, see, I'm looking at Iniesta, and it says uh, has he just signed for Japan. Iniesta moved to a Japanese club. Yeah, he's just. Oh, but that that's very recent, right? So that's just that happened. Is, so yeah. obviously he yeah, is has. he is going to be influenced by by all of this. Yeah. He was there. He was there. there to see all of this happen. But it is a that's shame. Right, yeah. It is a shame for the Spanish national team that. The players from this disruptive area happen to be their most experienced, their their leading players. You've got, you know, Piquet's were saying nearing a hundred caps. Iniesta is their vice captain. Sergio Biscuits, like the, <laughs> the, the, the Jordi Alba, like these are important players that uh, they can't afford to to lose. Kind of despite that uh, that conflicting sense of national identity. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder. If you go back to that golden generation of the Spanish team when they won those three tournaments on the bounce, um, how many, how, how big a portion of that squad were Barcelona players then? Yeah. When, um, I mean, Xavi obviously would still be included. He was he was a bit younger then. He's since retired from the national setup. But um, it'd be interesting to have a look actually about mm. um, whether the the most important contingent of that um, of that squad was Barcelona. And obviously Real Madrid have their 
strong influences too with Sergio Ramos um, amongst others. But I think uh, maybe as a, a bit like how the Spanish team themselves have fought just, just on the, uh, the other end of that golden generation. If you're looking at the Barcelona squad in terms of the Spanish contingent in that squad, maybe that's the case too. I, I mean, they did win the La Liga this season, but how much of that is down to Ar- uh, Argentinians such as Lionel Messi and Uruguayans such as um, the guy who bites people, what's his name? Luis Suarez. <laughs> and, and, Chomp, then, and Chompy McChompface, I think, is, is, yeah, is colloquially known. I think he has that on the back of his shirt. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, and Felipe Coutinho was, was a, a strong, had a strong season and he's Brazilian. So mm. maybe there isn't um, as much of Spain in the Barcelona football team as, anymore. Yeah, I think that that is uh, that is a really interesting analysis. I mean, I'm interested to see where this goes because there's something about a national unity that really does hold a team together, especially on a stage like this. And it was interesting earlier on. I was I was watching an interview with uh, with Pepe, the Portuguese Portuguese defender, who I think he's just moved to Besiktas, or recently he moved to moved to Besiktas. And um, it was a, an interview about that and how he was feeling moving uh, moving to Turkey and um, how he felt about the, the Portuguese national team. And the one thing that he mentioned in that interview was, we are united here. Right, like that, that was what he was saying. Saying as a Portuguese team, uh, we've... We've never been more united than we are right now. And that was the big point that he was making going forward is that Portugal, for uh, for whatever has happened in the past, you know, they're coming off the back of the Euro win, as you say. They have a clear sense of where they are going. And, I mean, this is... this Surely this is uh, Pepe's last World Cup, for sure. He's, he's 35 now. Ronaldo, yeah, you would imagine so. Cristiano Ronaldo is 33. So... This, if we're talking about a Portuguese golden generation, I think it very much has been happening around the same time as uh, as the, as the Spanish one. Do yeah, you think, if anything, has uh, been been overshadowed by the Spanish one? Yeah, but, but do you do you think Port- they've got it? They've got it in them to to get one over on the Spanish here. I think that's a, v- a very interesting question. Um, as we've said, Spain maybe aren't um, as strong as they have been uh, in in the uh, earlier on in the in this 21st century and like you say Ronaldo is nearing nearing he's think he's going to turn 34 soon this will probably be his last world cup and the 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 back line of portugal that took them all the way to to the uh, to euro 16 glory pepe bruno alves and jose font they have a combined age of, of 100 <laughs> between three players so right they they have a lot of experience at least a, a, around europe with their squad and the other players like Ricardo Quaresma, who's done his bit. I think he plays in Turkey uh, as well now. Uh, Jean Moutinho in the centre of midfield. He's another very experienced player. But um, I, as well, they do have some exciting talent in their squad. I mean, Andre Silva um, is a 23-year-old striker. He's He played for Milan last year. I mean, it wasn't particularly, um, he was a little bit disappointing um, considering his his calibre, but he always seemed to turn it on when he got up, when he got called up to that, to that United, as Pepe would would say, uh, yeah. Egyptian, uh, sorry, Egyptian, uh, per Portuguese team, and he scored nine goals in in qualifying, considering he was not really playing for him and at least not scoring for Milan in right. that same time. So there are, I think, there are elements of their squad that have more pride in their nation and playing for their nation um, than maybe maybe other other countries would do. Um, but they, I think you're right about them. They probably feel that like they do have a great idea about what direction they're going in, and a great idea of their of their system and of their of their best eleven. Um, I mean, under the, under their manager Fernando Santos, he's been in charge for about four years now, and they've won sixteen out of seventeen competitive qualifiers in that time. And on, in total of the twenty nine games that he's ever seen, they've only lost once. So that I mean, that's a pretty impressive record, where, whichever way you shake it. Yeah. Um, especially when it, I think that probably includes friendlies, and you know, friendlies you don't tend to worry about winning or losing, but still, they've they've won all but one. Uh, sorry, maybe they've won all their friendlies if that means that they they lost their one of those those qualifiers. Um, but it seems that with Ronaldo, and um, obviously, there's an infinite debate about whether he or Messi is the greatest. Um, in the world and maybe even of all time 
and it's no stretch to say that he was a massive part of their um, their fairly smooth qualification process. And same goes with Portugal, as goes with um, Real Madrid. Ronaldo, he can be anonymous for 80 minutes and then he can score worldies or he can entirely run a game and terrify and and dismantle any defence in front of him. Right. Um, I mean, in, in qualifying, he scored 15 goals in only nine games. <laughs> which it, included, it's, it's ridiculous, which included, right? Uh, which included two hat-tricks. And, right. and that, that was a massive contributor to him, the Portugal winning nine out of their 10 qualifying games for this tournament. Um, you just, but then you just wonder where their frailties lie. Uh, in, in, the, in their warm-ups, they lost to Holland 3-0. And as we know, Holland didn't even qualify for the tournament. Mm. Uh, they did beat Bel- uh, Egypt and they drew respectably with Belgium, which would also have a strong team. Um, but coming off the back of that Euro 16 win, they're going to have a lot of confidence, I feel. And I mean, I'm sure anyone walking out onto the pitch um, with Cristiano Ronaldo at your head wearing the captain's armband is going to give you even an awful lot of confidence. Um, I think it's a difficult, difficult one to call. With Spain's... Uh, Spain's implosion in the group stages um, in 2014 in the last World Cup, you just don't really know which Spanish team is going to show up. And I think you could say the same thing for Portugal. So as well, as much as I think they will comfortably qualify, Morocco and Iran, I don't think are going to have much to, to uh, offer either of them. Um, the match between the two of them, it could either be a goals fest or a boring draw, mm. and I, I couldn't put, I wouldn't put money on uh, one over the other. Well, let's let's imagine right now that you that you are Portugal in in this situation. As you're saying, you're you know you're filled with confidence, but you're looking at your your back three, going, you know, maybe we're uh, you know, we're, we're getting on a little bit for this situation. You know, thirty four. What an old man. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. But so that that first match with Spain has got has to be you know fairly intimidating because that's going to set the tone for the rest of the tournament, right? Like your opening match always sets the pace. Okay, if you you start with a win, you feel confident going forward into the tournament. If you get decimated in your first match, that's got to affect you. I think yeah, normally I'd say that's true. But when you're the the clear favourites to go to be one and two in the group, and you're playing each other first. You've probably got to think, well, even if we don't win this, we'll win our next two and give us a great chance of going through. All right. So I think oh, you might have uh, intimated at this before, but I think whoever wins between Spain and Portugal in that first, um, that first game will probably top the group. Yeah, yeah. You've got to be favourites to, to top the group there. But I, again, in any normal situation, I would be thinking that, that, that Spain's got this in the bag, well, closely anyway. Like it might be close, but I think you know you're again you're looking at, at Ronaldo, but the Spanish defense plays against Ronaldo at least four times a year, right? Most of them play with him. Like these are people that know how to shut him down because they shut him down in training every week. But then saying that, Spain just lost their manager, <laughs> like yeah. like it's, two it's days ago. This- this completely inexplicable variable has been thrown into the equation and now nobody knows what's going to happen. Yeah. And as, if we weren't already excited enough about the World Cup and the, it's starting today at time of recording, I'm looking it, in about four hours, the yeah. opening ceremony will start um, and I'm looking forward to that. But then to ha- tomorrow, having that game to look forward to, Portugal versus Spain, with all of this... Um, tumultuous back, stuff going on in the background. Uh, it's it's brilliant. I mean, if this was been written by a screenwriter, that would have been an amazing twist. It would. It definitely would. Okay, well, and, it's, talking talking about um, exciting twists that that shake uh, that shake the world to its very core. Um, obviously, America pulled out of the nuclear deal with Iran recently, and that might seem like uh, a fairly Swift change from from the Spanish uh, the Spanish Excellent manager segue. being that, that being was fired. A segue. Thank you, it. thank you. But of course, Iran is part of this group, um, and you know you might be thinking, oh Dom, how are you going to tie the destruction of the Iran nuclear deal 
into the World Cup. Well, firstly, listener, I, I hope you would have a little more faith in me than that. Because <laughs> I certainly do. Thank you. Because one of the, the most important things about the Iran, the nuclear deal, was that there, there was the agreement between America and Iran that if Iran uh, slowed down its enrichment of uh, nuclear material and uh, made no attempts towards uh, nuclear weapons, that America would lift its incredible trade uh, tariffs that had been placed on Iran for years and years and years. And this was one of the major reasons that Iran agreed, because it was being economically stifled by America to a point where it was almost forced into compliance. Now, there are um, right-wing Americans who will disagree with that and say America should have been doing more um, to try and slow Iran down, and that Obama gave too much uh, away to Iran in this case. But um, Obama's administration, the EU, various different trading nations uh, were in favour of opening Iran's economy to the world and, you know, making it a profitable country again. That is until last month, where Donald Trump decided that, uh, you know, it would be a great idea to cancel this this, uh, treaty that stopped Iran from blowing us all to kingdom come, and... Uh, slap those trade tariffs back on. And we have seen those trade tariffs come into full effect over the last couple of days where Nike has barred Iran footballers from wearing Nike shoes because Nike is an American company, Iran is Iran. And as, <laughs> as an American company, Nike is no longer able to supply Iran with football boots because of Trump's t- uh, trade tariffs. Now, wow. Trump's reach really knows no bounds when he stops Iranian footballers wearing this particular brand of boots at a World Cup in Russia. I, it's it's an, a ridiculous shutdown, right? Now, you would think, okay, the Iranian national team, you know, they could just go to the nearest Sports Direct in Moscow and pick up some new boots. But this is, you know, the sponsorship deals and, and this kind of thing is a big part of... Of football and a big part of FIFA as well. FIFA uh, play a huge role in, in sponsorship, what teams are allowed to wear, what teams are allowed to do. The amount yeah. of money that FIFA makes off of sponsorship in the World Cup is huge. So one country not being able to wear a major sponsors, that, that is has a massive effect on FIFA. And the Iranian FA is fuming about this. As, as you can imagine, they are furious because... Uh, FIFA has a a big problem with when you uh, enact political motivations uh, during a footballing arena, such as when you were saying earlier, was it it, uh, Pep Guardiola, when he wore the Catalonia thing? Because he wore a symbol of the the showcase's political feelings, he was fined for that. Um, Last year, I think it was during uh, Remembrance Day in the UK, where we traditionally wear uh, a poppy to, to remember fallen soldiers that, that died in the wars in the previous century. That was shown as, uh, that was suggested to be a political statement, and therefore the FA said, well, you can't do that. But people did anyway, and they just got fined for it. Well, in this case, Nike, which is a, a, an FA sponsor, is refusing to give a national team the clothes, the boots that they are supposed to give them because of a political situation, which should go against the FA's rules. And Iran, as you can imagine, Iran is, uh, is no stranger to, <laughs> to uh, political problems. Um, Iran, for example, refuses to play Israel. Um, and uh, let me find hmm. their names. I have their names here somewhere. Uh, Iran banned two of their midfielders, Masoud Sojai and uh, Hassan Hajavsky. Sorry, apologies there for horrible mispronunciations. But they barred these two midfielders from ever playing for the national team again because their Greek uh, club played an Israeli club and those Iranian players agreed to play in that match. Wow. So the Iranian FA is 
highly political and is always getting in trouble for it. And they are pointing out now what they see as uh, a kind of uh, hypocrisy on, on FIFA's part for not uh, for not saying to Nike, uh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> right, like, like, yeah, yeah. like you have to supply us with the equipment you are supposed to supply us. Just because of politics, you you uh you can't pull out of that. But FIFA have have come forward and say that Nike is a private company. They are not uh they are as a they are not a nation that is included in FIFA. Therefore, they are not bound by its regulations. Um, you know, this is the politics of trade rather than political interference in sport. Therefore, uh, you know. Suck it around. What are you going to do? Um, but this is, in, you know, I don't know much about the Iranian national team. All I know is I saw something about them the other day where they are all ridiculously handsome. Like, oh, are they? They are the most beautiful people that I have ever seen in my life. I am looking at the Iranian national team and thinking, so uh, so where do you guys play? Because uh, I'm thinking of swapping allegiances here. Maybe <laughs> it might not be enough for me to, to portray my country. That's not what, quite as far as, I, uh, as I'm ready to go just yet. But they are good-looking guys. But other than being good-looking, really, really good-looking, as Zoolander might say, like, <laughs> what kind of a chance do they stand in a group with Spain and Portugal, right? Like, their first match is against Morocco... Who is the favourite in that? That, my friends, is a solid question. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's difficult to call. It's a strange group in that you could almost draw a line down the middle of it and say Portugal and Spain on one side, either first or second, and then Morocco and Iran on the other side, either third or fourth, and you can mix and match, but they all won't really cross that line. Um, sadly, what is, what is interesting about the Iranian team, and I will explain why I'm kind of edging for Iran to finish third and Morocco to finish fourth. Okay. Um, one one reason is that Iran are managed by Carlos Quiros, who used to was assistant manager to Alex Ferguson at Man United, and then went on to manage Real Madrid and the Portuguese national team. Right. So it's interesting that they've been drawn in the same group, and while it will come down to whether the Iranian players can implement any system that Kieros designs to stop Portugal and whether they can actually do that, whether they've got the quality or not to do it, he's at least got an advantage in that he has some sort of inside track. Um, so they have that which Morocco don't. I don't see any way Morocco can get anything against Portugal or Spain, but if Iran, say, can maybe scrape an, un an unlikely draw um, with Portugal, meaning Portugal finished second and Iran finished third, I think they'd probably take that as success. Considering they they were at the last World Cup um, in 2014, uh, this is actually the first time they've ever qualified for two World Cups in a row. But uh, yeah. at that World Cup in Brazil in 2014, they only managed to score once, and that was against Bosnia and Herzegovina. So they they've got some thing to prove to themselves that as well as as much as they can um, qualify well now in the seams in this in this spell of the last eight to ten years. I mean they beat South Korea and China and Qatar on the way here, and they do have right. some exciting players. Um, they have, there's a, they have um, a four player called Sadar Azmoun, who is referred to as the Iranian Messi. <laughs> so as, as, what as a title. As, what, what a title. No pressure to live up to whatsoever. I'm sure yeah. he'll be fine. Um, he has, does have 22 goals for Iran, and he plays, he plays his trade in Russia for Ruben Kazan. So okay. he's, he, might, he might feel almost like he's a little bit at home uh, playing in the World Cup in, in, um, in Russia. Um, Another player I'll, I'll point out um, is another one who's got experience in, um, in European football. It's Ali Reza Jahan Bash, who's a winger who plays for Holland for AZ Alkmaar. And he's, he's had a, um, come off of a very good season where he was a top scorer in the Dutch league. 21 goals. He got 12 assists that season. Um, and he's got 34 goals um, in 85 games for, for Alkmaar. So he obviously can perform at a decent level. Um, so while... They may struggle to stop Spain and Portugal conceding. They may be able to get some goals. Okay. Um, which I, I think Morocco may struggle with. I would uh, just like to, to add a quick uh, addendum to, to my, my previous point about the life bans, because I thought I'd better just double check that. Uh, the, the, the two players that I, that I mentioned, Masoud Shojai, he is the captain of Iran. 
right? So oh, uh, really? that yeah. So uh, and oh, the, the the other player as well, uh, Essan Hajaski, uh, Ajaf Sorry, um, <laughs> they they have both been reincluded uh, into the national team. This life this uh, life ban against them seem to have been uh, seems to have. Yeah, it's in the case of being reviewed very conveniently in time for the World Cup, right? Like, so they're, they're included in the squad? They oh. were banned, then an appeal yeah. was launched, and while the appeal is launched, they can play internationally. Now, it is very convenient that the appeal happens to be happening while the World Cup is on. Um, as I said, as I said Masood, is, Masood is the captain of the team. He's 34. You know, if he, they, they decide to throw the, uh, the, the, the life ban back on him, after the World Cup, this is his last one anyway. But yeah. um, but again, these are the players, as you're saying, with uh, with European experience. They both play for Greek teams. Hadjasfi uh, plays for Olympiakos and uh, Masoud plays for AEK Athens. So, like, the, you know, while the Iranians aren't quite on the same level club-wise as your Spanish or, or your Portuguese, they're still playing at a fairly high at a fairly high level, they're still playing European football, which is you know. Yeah, they're they're probably appearing in maybe not Champions Leagues, but um, European Cups. Yeah. So, what do you know about the Moroccans? Um, a little bit. I mean, I think I'll start by saying that they have some caliber in their management. They're managed by a Frenchman called Herve Renard, and uh, he has got some pedigree in international tournaments. He's won the African Cup of Nations twice with two different countries. He um, led Zambia to the, the trophy in 2012 and then three years later did the same with Ivory Coast. So I think he will have definitely have a good, uh, a good set of experiences when it comes to tournament football. Mm. But um, they're, they're not overly well represented themselves in, uh, in World Cup history. This is, their, this is their first World Cup in 20 years. Oh, wow. Um, so they've struggled to even reach one. Um, and if you're looking at their squad... Their key man probably is Mehdi Benashia, the centre half plays for Juventus. He's a very strong player and he'll be organizing things um organizing things from the back there. But if you're looking at any threat they may offer to um to other teams, uh they've got an exciting striker called Ayub El Kabi, who scored ten goals and eight international appearances since he made it since making his debut in January. So he's really oh. hit the ground running. He's firing right now. Yeah. But I think you can't you uh Especially in a group with Portugal and Spain, you can't progress with a good centre half and one good striker. I mean, again, looking at the, uh, the the their recent fixtures, you know, like as you're saying, this this player is is done ridiculously well. But the teams they're playing, they've been playing against. You know, we're talking Serbia, which is you know that's uh, that's a fair game, I guess. But then no, no, Uzbek- Serbia are strong, I think. Uh... Yeah, but then Uzbekistan, you know, then they beat Estonia three one, like. You know, a, a win's a win, and they were in Estonia. To be fair to them, but you know, it's not Spain, it's not Portugal, and you know, you look at the comparative fixtures. You know, Spain just beat Argentina six-one. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, if we're talking about the kind of form that, that even the, the form that these teams are on, like, yeah, Morocco, they, they've been scoring some goals, but but they're also they didn't lose any of their five warm-up games. I know there's yeah. maybe those weren't particularly strong opponents besides Serbia, which I mean I, I will say that's an impressive win against um, a Serbia team that are are fairly are fairly strong. They've got some good some good quality, but they didn't lose. Um, in Ukraine is another difficult opponent that which they drew nil nil with. Yeah. Um, so it, I guess every every nation is going to do their warm ups differently. Uh, for you know, and it, for example, in um, England because they've got Panama in their group, they played Costa Rica, and they were wanting to sort of match up that kind of style of football. Um, like as you've said, none of those five opponents that Morocco have played, however, are particularly Spain or Portugal like. Mm. Yeah, just taking a quick look at uh, Iran's previous fixtures as well. They've they've played actually some some fairly similar teams. Get perhaps getting re- uh, preparing for Morocco, they played Algeria and Tunisia. Like, yeah. <laughs> and we're talking about the world of you know North uh, North African football. Yeah, They're pretty much That's getting the same ready week for this. as well. Th- those games are four days apart. Yeah, so yeah. They, they lost yeah. to Tunisia and then four days later went and won um, against Algeria. But then Turkey, the, the following fixture, that's again quite similar. They're on that same uh, same North African 
That's your kind of Arabic kind of style of football. I, yeah, I yeah, exactly. But it, it, it's interesting that you were saying about England playing Costa Rica to get ready for Panama. Is that right? Then yeah. it see if we're looking at how Iran is preparing, it seems like what Iran has done is gone. Look, in this group, the only team we stand a chance of beating is Morocco. Right? Maybe we get lucky and everyone else <laughs> yeah. draws all their matches. And if but if we beat Morocco then maybe we can stand a chance of just getting something out of this. We want to win one match. So all they have done is play teams like Morocco. So that when it <laughs> yeah. comes down to... Maybe this is the, the, the key that we're missing here, is that Iran really wants this match. And whereas you know Morocco haven't been going around playing, I don't know, Syria and Iraq and you know the yeah. countries that border Iran whereas Iran is getting seriously prepared for this one match and it doesn't matter what else happens in the World Cup yeah that's a good point well spotted yeah that's a, it's a good pattern and that that seems to me that the most likely explanation is, is just that <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna win something boys we're gonna win something then they can go home <laughs> to their their I imagine beautiful wives and live their beautiful lives because they're so fucking handsome. <laughs> but I'm not jealous. I'm not jealous of, of their wives. Much. Yeah, maybe uh, Iranian wives isn't the safest topic of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe this is the perfect time to... Uh, Who knows to... who's listening? Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I was speaking into, into my computer in China. The Chinese government is definitely listening anyway. Yeah, so, uh, all, the, all the buzzwords, they've, the amount of times you said Iran and Russia into your computer in the last few days. They, <laughs> I, in the last two days, yeah, the last two days I've spoken about Russian assassinations, Saudi assassinations, the Iranian nuclear deal and the Moroccan national football team. So <laughs> the, Chinese, the Chinese government is their eavesdropping on me, must be pretty you're, you're on a watch list, no doubt. Your face is on a wall in some government building in China somewhere. But that is perfect for our podcast, which is called Who Watches the World Cup, as a reference to Who Watches the Watchmen. So, wow. My, how you, did that come around? Full circle you, magic. You know, this is what we're saying about the, the segue, man. We've got that, we've got that segue <laughs> nailed down. I think this is the perfect time to, uh, to come to an end on, on this discussion. So we, okay, yeah. looking, looking at, at, at Group B... You know, uh, again, it's what happens in this, this Portugal-Spain match. It, it, we, but we have to pick someone. Who do you think it's going to be? Uh, to go through top? Yeah. Um, I'm going to say that... I'm going to say that despite being able... That, I think in terms of the strength in squad, Spain were able to leave out Alvaro Morata and Cesc Fabregas and still have a very strong squad... Um, so I'm going to go Spain first, followed by Portugal. And I will even go as to say, maybe more out of hope, around third, Morocco fourth. Ooh, that's bold. That is bold. I'm yeah, I'm, out I'm, I, think, I think Iran is... is oh no, so I was going to say, I think Iran will beat Morocco, but Morocco will come above them in the table. But in the same way, as we were saying before, the same way that Portugal-Spain will decide the top spot... The Morocco Iran match has to has to decide the bottom spot. As, as yeah, you, you would think so. Yeah, yeah, and especially um, I'd like to see how Iran do and whether they look positive and organised enough that maybe with the Carlos Queiroz element, element they can um, put a bit of a some some uh, shackles on on Portugal and, and Ronaldo in particular and see if they can come out with something respectable from that one. Well, even if they don't look organised. They're going to look fucking gorgeous while they do it. I mean, shall we have a quick look at what the Iranian World Cup kit looks like and see how to just, just imagine? Yeah, <laughs> them, uh, <laughs> them no, no, out. no, we can't. We, we have to build the suspense. For, but I hope the, the listeners can enjoy the Iranian national team uh, yeah. as much as I do. So uh, Please, please that, go and have a look at their, their, their squad photo and, uh, and, see what, and <laughs> see what you think. And dream and, and allow yourself yeah. to dream. Yeah, thank you for, for joining us on, on the, the second uh, episode of, of Who Watches the World Cup. Next time, well, next time is going to be a bit of a blitz episode, actually, because as you, as you know, dear listener, this is a, a blend of both footballing prowess and uh, political skill. And there are an awful lot of the groups 
where there is no interesting political rivalries um, or I mean, who drew, who drew these groups, honestly? They could have made it a bit more interesting, right? You know what? They, they could have done. And also, uh, looking, at, uh, looking at them, for example, we have uh, France in Group C. We have uh, Argentina in Group D. Brazil uh, in Group E. Like, these are ones that we know. We can take a pretty fair guess that they're going to be uh, going to be going forth. And we don't want to be talking about them three or four times in a row. So what we're going to do, uh, the next episode will be a, a, a bit of a blitz to go through all of these different groups, pull out some little political tidbits where we can, compare them uh, more on, on their footballing skill to think, you know, who is going to make it? Is it going to be Argentina or is it going to be Iceland? You know, <laughs> you know, big, qu- big I, questions like that. You know, th- those are the kind of things that, uh, yeah, that we're, we're going to be looking to uh, looking to decide on the next episode. So thank you very much for listening and uh, we'll see you next time. Toodaloo.